Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Baghurst. Joined this morning by special guest, Dr. Joanna Lane. She is the Senior Director of Education and Program Development for the National Fast Pitch Coaches Association. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. If you wouldn't mind, just maybe give us a little bit of background of how you got into this position. Good morning. You bet. My pleasure. Uh, like Tim said, my name is Joanna Lane. I am an FSU grad, which is makes this so much more fun for me. So I appreciate that. Uh, I began my journey in athletics, as most kids do, playing a whole lot of everything growing up in a very small town in Ohio. I uh, played collegiate softball and then went on to be a graduate assistant for Dr. Joanne Graff at Florida State where Dr. Graff was a leader in our coaches association. And so from a very early part of my coaching career, understood the importance of giving back and being part of the association and what that professional development could do. And went on to work for three different Hall of Famers over my coaching career. And then we had an executive director change at the NFCA in 2016, where I was serving as a vice president on our board of directors. And the new executive director, who is now in her seventh year, Carol Bruggeman, became full-time. She called and said, hey, we need to revamp some education. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. So we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where we're headquartered and have been doing coach education uh, since 2016 and loving every minute of it. How big is the organization? Because a lot of coach associations tend to be quite small, don't have much infrastructure, don't have much budget, and, and really can't, can't do what you're doing in, in your association, which is hire people full time, develop, uh, you know, training programs, etc. Yes, you're absolutely right. We are so proud of everything that has happened since 40 years ago. We we were founded in 1983, so we're celebrating a huge 40th anniversary this December at our national convention. But we have almost 7,000 members, and part of that growth is because of the grassroots movement. There's a lot of coaches associations who don't include travel high school grassroots coaches as part of their association memberships. We embrace and love that grassroots because that's where you know, you can really affect change and you can really help guide a sport. So we have probably half of those members coming from our youth level in some way, shape or form. And internally, we are around 12 staff members. We have one part time, but we are all headquartered here in Louisville. Everyone is in office. We do not outsource anything. See some other coaches associations that outsource membership or sponsorship. It's done all with our staff. And we a lot of us have been together you know, 10, seven years. I'm one of the newer staff members, uh, which is kind of crazy in, in my seventh year. So I'm really proud of everything this organization has done. And, and culturally, uh, you would be hard pressed to find a better executive director, boss and, and human really than Carol Bruggeman and leading the charge for us. And that's been a big difference. Membership wise, Tim, we were just over 3,000 members in 2016. So, I mean, we have grown just exponentially since then and, you know, had the, had the COVID fall off, but I think we'll be setting a record this month for highest ever. So really excited to continue growing coaches, bringing coaches into the fold and investing in our coaches, developing those individuals. You've, you've seen growth in your membership. Is that because there's a growth in softball or is it just because you've found people who are doing coaching softball, but just haven't, uh, haven't been part of an organization before. I think it really is 
the fact that softball not only is gaining in popularity in, in terms of viewership and opportunities being back in the Olympics is huge. We'll continue to see growth with that. But I don't think there's any growth that's different than what we've seen in volleyball or lacrosse or other sports that are available. I do think identifying the transient coaches, you know, the high school and travel ball and youth coaches, they change regularly. There are new travel teams all the time. And so being able to put yourself in a position where they can find you and you can find them, maybe they only coach for two years and they're coaching their daughters eight and 10 new teams. That's okay. We have something for them. You don't have to be a lifelong member, but when you're coaching, we want to support you in, in that process. As for our collegiate coaches, that's easy. We have a very strong tie-in to our awards program, All-American program, Victory Club, and a lot of different things. So that's a much more consistent membership, but it's that youth part that's really contributed to the bulk of our growth and assistant coaches. I think head coaches finding the benefits for having their assistants also be members has been huge for us. Now you were you were a collegiate coach. You were, uh, if memory serves me, assistant coach, then head coach, then back to assistant coach. I'm curious, what made you decide to quit coaching? You know, I get that question a lot. And the the honest answer is I had a, a contract non-renewal when I was a head coach at South Dakota State University. I was there four years, non-renewed, and it hit hard. And feeling a lot of the things that so many of my friends had felt that you just didn't realize with um, the way the profession you know, was going in terms of student athlete evaluations and administrators and, and being able to um, really have a collaborative environment. And I felt so many of my colleagues were missing supports. And so when I was given the opportunity to talk to Carol about, well, what does education mean? Are we, are we just doing drills for pitching and hitting and then that's it? We're just pumping those out? Or, and it, it was an emphatic, no, we are really working on professionalizing the profession, right? Then how we can help our coaches and how we can grow. And so for me, I was more excited about helping coaches than I was about spending eight hour days in the batting cage. And when I felt that transition internally, I knew it was time to do something a little bit different. And so I still get to have a little bit of a touch on some of those things through whether it's championships or other areas, but being able to get in the trenches with the coach every day has, has really been a blessing and it, it just continues to grow in our opportunity to impact the entire sport. What would you say is the challenge for you as a coach developer to make sure that that what you're offering your coaches is relevant, real, and applicable? Because we we who who may be in coach development, uh, such as you and I, may be accused of of living in an ivory tower to some extent. You aren't in the trenches, really, right? You just kind of you come in, see what we do, come in, talk to us, and then go do your own thing. But you you really don't know what it's like. So, so how do you how do you combat that to to make sure that what the content that you're delivering is applicable to the coaches that you're serving? We do as much as we can to tap into the needs of our coaches 
through our coaches. So we have several education committees, events committees. Our board of directors is very large and we invest in that board by having in-person meetings multiple times a year, which is not a, a frugal choice, uh, but it's a choice that we feel is vital for our growth. And by really having the relationships with our coaches that they can say, you know, hey, look, I, I have a true problem with my student athletes right now and their sense of reality of where they stack up in the depth chart and what I'm seeing. We are a total disconnect. How, how do I deal with this? You know, it was a call last week. And so then it just starts turning of problems don't live in isolation. If one person is bringing it up, then it's happening across every sport and across all levels. So what can we do to help with that. And so then it just becomes a creating opportunities quickly because coaching is so dynamic. You know, in the in the microcosm of what is happening everywhere else has always been so apparent in sport, but I think we learned that quite a bit with COVID and, and coming out of that and the increased eligibility and so many things that our coaches, the education they want that is a soft skill standpoint has to happen very quickly because it's in response to usually a current situation. So trying to do those things very quickly and trying to get as much as we can from our own coaches in terms of suggestion. On the flip side, when we do more of a how to structure a practice, that's a little bit different. You know, that doesn't change a lot from year to year. We can do a little bit more long-term planning with those deliverables. Um, but when it comes to the current issues, you know, it, those have to, have to happen very quickly. And it definitely takes a lot of individuals to be able to, to turn that around. Switching, switching gears a little bit, uh, what are you seeing the challenges of coaches in, in today's environment? What, what are the things that people are talking about you're, you're having to maybe prepare materials for? You know, I think that a lot of our coaches have struggled with the increase in roster size. And I think that's been something that's been very Can difficult. Can on that? Sure. I think that with the additional year of eligibility, and this is a, a very specific collegiate program, but with the additional year of eligibility and with, you know, some emphasis on some Title IX numbers, a lot of our coaches are being asked to have rosters in the 30s. Uh, Division three is experiencing this in a really difficult way. And, and you have one coach, you have 30 student athletes, um, and, you know, you don't, usually have the budget to be able to take care of those student athletes. You're not going to be able to travel all 30. You're not going to be able to dress all 30 at home. Even there are going to be some problems there. And so for a lot of our coaches, it's been difficult to try to manage that and keep people happy, so to speak. And when you combine that with a world of, you know, direct access to administrators, presidents, and even provosts sometimes of I'm unhappy, you know, my coaches is not giving playing time or whatever it might be, it can create a really difficult dynamic. So I think that culture and management as it relates to roster management has been a big piece. I'll be personally really interested to see how that changes the next couple of years since we're in that last year of the COVID extra eligibility and how that goes. I think for a lot of our coaches, you know, they're also still working through 
the sustainability piece of, of recruiting. I hear that a lot this time of year for softball in, in particular. You're trying to get your own team ready to go and you're recruiting for the next class. Um, and there's a lot of, of stress on the coach. And I think that fall has become very difficult for our coaches. So trying to find the best way to support them and in, in their own well-being of building in, whether it's recruiting breaks or what what can come from that that would hopefully be positive for prospective student athletes as well. Time off is a good thing. And we hear that quite a bit. And then, you know, I think the last several years, there's been that increased focus on gender equity. You know, the women's basketball, you know, issue with the weight room, if it did anything, it just created a lot of light for other sports to say, hey, what about us? And I think that we've seen it on all our divisions. Uh, we've seen high school coaches with a different type of investment in gender equity. So we get a lot of gender equity questions as well as it relates to anything from you know facilities and budget, which are the apparent ones, to even you know the supports that are involved with, with coaches. So I think there's a lot of things there. And with that comes salary. I know a lot of our high-level coaches are paving the way um, in, in salary, and we still have you know some who are grossly underpaid compared to other coaches on campus, um, baseball counterparts, and, and others. So I think those are a sampling of, of what we've seen. On the youth level, I think a lot of overuse injury uh, data. We don't have a set pitch count type of system that baseball has. And so really trying to understand the wear and tear that these student athletes are are going into college with. Uh, it's happening. Um, either, either we're more aware of it or it's it's happening at a higher rate. We just don't have the data. So really working on getting that data and trying to find ways to continue supporting those student athletes. You know, we, we kind of say it tongue in cheek, but student athlete welfare doesn't start when they're a freshman in college. Student athlete welfare is, is when they're 12 years old playing an 8 a.m. game and an 11 p.m. game, and it's their seventh of the day. Uh, but we don't talk about that, you know, from the youth sports side. We just talk about it when it's, you know, on TV. So I think those are some things that, you know, have continued to show themselves and that we are doing our best to take on one at a time and try to offer some solutions. You said you don't have a, a pitch count. Uh, the logic in me says, why not? <laughs> right, me too. I, it's it's a really good question. And I think what we've seen, a lot of our, and I think this is true for other sports, I'm just not as familiar, but a lot of our youth programs don't have a true governing body. You can play in a you know triple crown or a triple SA or a PGF or an alliance or a USA softball. You can play in all these different tournaments and they all have different rules. They all have different um, processes for submitting rosters and there's just no uniform oversight. And so I think that for a lot of teams, without having you know, a mandated reporting system to be able to log innings, uh, we just we don't have that infrastructure. And I don't think we've seen um, the ability to cultivate pitchers. You know, I think when you look at baseball, to bring a right fielder in and ask him to pitch, it's not going to be the same. But it's a general movement that is similar to throwing from right field. When you bring a softball right fielder in and ask her to pitch, 
she may have never done it before in her life and it, it just simply won't work. She'll walk or hit everyone that she throws to. So there's a unique difference in pitching in our sport compared to any other athletic skill. And I don't think we develop enough pitchers young enough to be able to have four or five, six pitchers on a team. We're starting to see more, um, but I think I think that it's still missing to be able to truly enforce pitch counts across so many different governing bodies. You said that you're not developing pitchers young enough. Uh, are, are there the same risks in developing pitchers in softball as there in baseball? And why are coaches not going to the long-term athlete development? Why are coaches not developing athletes to be, uh, to be skilled in learning all positions is this a case of winning before everything so we just put joanna in as pitcher because she's the best on the team and she's going to carry us or is there just no emphasis on developing the whole athlete because i don't know how good joanna is going to be at 16 or 17. sure i think that's a great question and a lot of different ways to unpack that i think for a lot of girls they all start wanting to pitch because it's fun. It's different. And so they will they will start learning the basics. Um, but there's very little control. There's very little accuracy. And again, since the skill is so different than a baseball counterpart, there's no basis. I haven't been throwing like that for five years before I start pitching. So I don't have even a remote skill set. And sometimes I truly feel that we we coach pitching, dynamic pitching out of our young girls because we're trying to get them to throw strikes and it's hard to do. And so the kids that can throw strikes and still be dynamic and still throw hard and it's rare. So I think what do you, what do you mean? Can I interrupt and just say, what do you mean by dynamic? Dynamic? Yeah. I, I think if you, if you watch someone trying to master a skill, and you go back to teaching of that skill, a lot of kids will, will slow down and try to go step by step. And when you're throwing something, you need to be able to have velocity. You need to be able to have um, fast movements and you need to be able to really um, be able to be powerful in what you're doing. And so if you are super slow motion trying to throw a strike, then okay, maybe you can, you get there and you throw a strike. But then when you try to speed up, you start throwing a lot of balls again. And so sometimes it's difficult to teach young girls to forget everything else and just, just go for it, right? Move your body as fast as you can, move your legs as fast as you can, your arm as fast as you can, because I think there's an an increased need for success or perfectionism. And when we don't have that, then it's very easy to move past it and, I, and move on to a different position. And I think that if we can, as coaches, be very patient in the progression of our pitchers and have, you know, different rules that, okay, well, if you walk someone, you're not really going to walk, a coach is going to come in, they're going to throw the next pitch to keep the game engaging, to keep it exciting. Sometimes I think we could benefit at the youth level from really just taking the rules, throwing them out the window and start over again, you know, and, and I think that softball in particular 
when you think about those eight-year-olds pitching to each other, it's horrible to watch. I remember apologizing to my parents the first time I went to an eight and under game with my nieces. I was like, was I this bad? Did you have to sit through this? You know, and, and it's, but being able to find a way to keep it engaging and fast paced and moving when you're walking a lot of people, I think is really hard. And we just don't see that at the same rate in baseball with walks. Um, again, because the pitching motion is familiar. So for softball, I think, you know, to go back to the beginning of the question, taking the time to have all your kids try it and try it every day and have them stick with it. We also, in softball, we use a 12-inch ball. And when you look at the size of a kid's hand, especially kids who are younger, throwing a 12-inch ball is sometimes next to impossible. And then, you know, we're also going to move them back from 35 to 40 or 43 feet. So just when a, a kid turns 12, you're going to say, here's an extra inch on the ball, and we're going to move you back five feet. There's a lot of kids that quit pitching then because they, they can't. Their hand's not big enough to throw it. And when you think about a baseball, it never changes, right? It never changes size. It never changes, you know, the, the way that it's being mastered by the kids. So I think there are some inherent issues in softball when it comes to developing the pitchers. Um, it's also scary. You know, I think for a lot of kids, the first time a ball comes back at them, they're very close. You know, we've wised up to the masks and some different things for protection. Um, but there's some kids that that's just not where they want to be. So a lot of a lot of moving pieces there, Tim, maybe more than, than we bargained for on this one. But um, it is interesting because it's it's crucial for team success. Yeah. I, I would argue just, just hearing what you say. One, I, I think baseball has its own problems. I mean, my own son quit baseball because he kept getting hit by the ball in in as a, a 10-year-old, right? Because the pitcher couldn't hit a strike. And he his goal was to get a walk every time and not get hurt. And finally, he was like, I'm, I'm scared of this thing. I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think baseball has its inherent problems, too, with with young boys pitching when they're not ready to be pitching accurately. It sounds like given the, the issues that you've described, it sounds like rule changes are required, but in order to create rule changes, you have to have a governing body. And, and I just wonder if there's, it, it's almost cart before the horse, chicken, chicken and egg situation where we need these things, but we don't have this thing but we don't have this thing, so we can't change this. Is that a case? Because from my perspective, I look at other organizations like tennis, where they've changed the size of the ball, changed the size of the rackets to to accommodate uh, to accommodate more rallies in youth, which creates more skill, which translates later to more success as, as adults. Should softball be reassessing how they, how they, the rules that they have in place where maybe you don't start pitching that early because it's, it's not creating a game situation where, where kids get experience, even at bat, if they're walking all the time, what skill has been developed other than don't swing? Right. 
Right. And, you know, we, our national team coach currently, Heather Tarr, who's also the coach at the University of Washington, um, this is a huge belief of hers and, and something that she's working very hard um, with USA Softball on, specifically with ball size and, and throwing and just arm health in kids in so many ways. And and I think that we have the leadership in place in several of those organizations that I mentioned, Triple Crown and USSA and Alliance and PGF, that um, I think they are willing to really think about it and and make some of those changes. It's if we can ever accomplish, and this is you know goal number one for me, getting everyone in the same room and really looking at each other of what is best for the student athlete. What is best for the parent? What is best? And you're taking on a multi-million dollar group of people in that room, but being able to, if even if it's just playing rules, not even starting with 150 team tournaments, 45 minute game limits and entry fees that have a lot of zeros. Even if you're not starting with that, if you're simply starting with playing rules and just chipping away at ways to ensure not only student athlete development and health and safety, but but future of the game. Um, I think we can get there. And, and that's where our national convention is great because we do have all those people in the room and we can have those preliminary conversations and try to make headway into action items. But it's definitely it's definitely the long game. Mm -hmm. uh, turning it back to, to coaches a little bit, um, I, I'm working with a faculty member uh, in youth softball actually looking at just the stress placed upon upon these young athletes to get scholarships and to to make it to quote the next level what what are you seeing in terms of young young athlete burnout uh, maybe even coach burnout where the pressure is so high to be successful that if so and so doesn't get to to the college or get the scholarship then i'm going to lose participation in my club team because I'm not as successful as I'm supposed to be. This is a, a very competitive environment for coaches at the club level. Uh, what what are you seeing in, in that world and what can coaches do to help mitigate that balance between success and development? Well, one thing that I think we've been most proud of over the, the last several years is truly changing the recruiting calendar so that our collegiate coaches aren't even having conversations with prospective student athletes until September 1 of the junior year. When you go back to 2016, we had top 10 SEC coaches committing sixth graders. Sixth graders. I mean, it just was was nuts. And they weren't the only ones. You know, I don't even need to put the caveat of a conference in there. They were not the only ones. And when we started to really say, hey, look, more time is better for everyone. More time is better for you as a college coach. You you haven't even seen grades yet. How, how can you, you know, how can you have an idea about success in college? More time is better for the student athletes because there's no such thing as a late bloomer without an accelerated process. If you aren't starting the process until, you know, a junior year, then there's a whole lot less late bloomers because it's not really late. It's just late in relation to when we're starting this mess. And so I think that in the quest to get the best kids that we will constantly have college coaches pushing that envelope, 
you know, really trying to identify kids as young as they can and, and inviting them to camps and trying to make relationships with them so that when September 1 call comes and they call them at midnight, which is a whole other issue, then they can get a quick commitment. And it seems like that's what we we have so much of because of social media and all the things. But I think by my count in the first week, it was 40, 40 kids. Well, if we have 300 division one programs and they have 21 student athletes per, then 40 kids is a really very, very, very small amount, but that's what we're flooded with in the social media. And that's what, you know, the, idea of comparison steals, you know, from us is that it takes your process and it takes your own individual journey as a prospective student athlete and it taints it a little bit. And that is just really disappointing for me as a mom, as a coach, as whatever it might be, because your journey is your own. So I think the biggest thing we can do is continue to help our prospective student athletes, our youth kids know that there, there is a place, there is a place for you and it's different for everyone. And the journey is different for everyone, but we can, we can work together and, and find those things. And for the, the competitive side of the club coach, I go back to the why. And I think that is some of the problematic nature of youth sport. Your why isn't to list the logos and coaches of as many schools as you can on where you've sent kids. You know, the why is that you find the right opportunity and help your student athlete find the right opportunity for their own future. And, and if we can maintain that focus and not make it about the coach and their ego and how many scholarships they've gotten, then we can do a whole lot better with the entire system. You know, chasing the scholarship is a really difficult slippery slope in softball because we have 12 and they're equivalents. They're not headcounts. And so oftentimes we see, you know, teams putting in thousands of dollars worth of dues on their student athletes. And if you just simply save those dues for the 10 years your kid is in that program, you can probably pay for two years of college. But Instead, you know, you're looking at a 30% scholarship and some academic aid on top, and you're still going to come out with student loans. And so it's it's a different it's a different sport. But um, I think there are some things there that you know, hopefully, if you're with the right coach, um, you can find that process for you that that makes sense and results in a really positive experience. Mm. Yeah, it, it is interesting how so many athletes and parents chase the the athletes. There, there are literally thousands and thousands of softball players chasing such such a small number of scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just is it. I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with this, but is it is it just a, the lack of education that parents? Parents are just taught to to chase athletic scholarships, and that's the be all and end all, rather than recognizing that there's so many other pathways to financial support in in college sports. I think that is part of it, and sometimes I wonder if it's truly about the dollar or if it's about the dollar reflecting the success. Uh, good point. You know, and it it becomes a well, I've got the scholarship, um, so my kid's the best, or because I, I don't know if it's if it's as student athlete driven. You know, I think sometimes parents and coaches and adults just really get in the way and kids have a better idea of maybe how it should all work out for them than we give them credit for. And I think that a lot of times 
chasing the scholarship is the validation that you are good enough, that your hard work is paying off and all of the things. Uh, but it's a supply and demand game. You know, you might be the best shortstop in your area, um, but if you're not playing in the certain place at a certain time for people to see you or they have a need for you or there's a lot more to it than just your your worth and your value and to go back to that stress component i think that's hit you in the face mental health as soon as we start tying value and reward to scholarship then we are asking these young kids to start putting pressure on themselves to perform and that that means that they're good enough or they're worthy or they're, and, and that's just where we as coaches, adults, leaders, parents, all of the things, we have to see that we have to be better because it has really wreaked havoc on a generation of kids um, that they, they don't need that. They don't need that pressure. They don't need those things. And, you know, I think we, we lose sight of that sometimes and, and we don't understand what it's like. We don't, you talked about the trenches earlier with, with coaching and a coaches association viewpoint say the same thing, you know, even to my brother raising my nieces of, Hey, look, you weren't walking around with an iPhone in your pocket, your football career, your wrestling career would have been completely different. You know, if you were exposed to the things that kids are exposed to today and we don't, we don't realize that we don't know what that's like. And it's, it's changed. It's changed the entire world as they know it. And we, only hope to understand it, but it's not a lived experience from us. Well said. Uh, final question. Thinking in terms of coaches and, and the coaches you worked with and the coaches in your organization, what, what advice do you have for coaches that that maybe others that, that aren't in softball might be able to take away? I think the biggest thing that I would suggest for any coach is to put yourself out there. I hear so many success stories from our coaches who say, well, I just emailed so-and-so and asked if I could watch a practice. And they said, sure. And I think that our coaches, coaches are educators and educators at heart are servants. And I think that when we can put that together, I used to go watch practice anywhere I could, right? Our football coach, our wrestling coach, those are my favorite practices to watch when I was at Central Michigan was the wrestling team uh, because coaching is coaching and you can learn so much on how elite coaches address their student athletes, how practices are organized and run, how things are communicated. And just observing those things can, can have you challenge what you think you know, reflect on what you're doing. And I think by putting yourself out there and asking, hey, can I come work this camp? You don't have to pay me. I just want the experience. Can I come watch a practice? Um, you, you might get a no. That's okay. You know, you're going to get a lot of them if you're doing your job right. And that's good. But for every no you get, you're going to get yeses. And it's going to just continue opening paths and opening doors and allowing you to grow you know, in your own way. So I think coaches have to be willing to put themselves out there, be vulnerable, and try to just bring as much as they can from other sports, colleagues, and anyone they can get to. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. And I know a lot of people watch this later or listen to the podcast at some point. And if they have a question for you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, you can email me anytime. It's very easy. It's Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A at NFCA, National Fast Pitch Coaches Association. That's NFCA.org. Seen on the screen there, but would love to connect. So hope to hear from several people. 
Well, Joanna, thank you again for joining me. And I hope people do reach out to, to you with, with questions and, and maybe even look at membership as well if they're in softball. Just a reminder, everybody, that we try to do these once every couple of weeks. So be sure to like and subscribe and follow wherever you're watching or listening from. But on behalf of myself, Tim Baghurst and Joanna Lane, thanks so much for watching.